A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Kids in the Philippines have not left their homes for a whole year. Everyone knows of the long-term effects of being cooped up, but the government still insists that letting children loose poses a greater danger to the country's multi-generational households. And if there is something more American than apple pie, it's the chocolate chip cookie. But like so many famous foods, its invention was reputedly an accident. And like so many convenience foods, its uh, rise had a lot to do with marketing. First up, though. Israelis have started voting today for the fourth time in two years. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is once again fighting for re-election after his unity government with Benny Gantz collapsed in December. It might feel a bit like deja vu, but a lot has changed since the last election in the pandemic's early days. This time around, Mr. Netanyahu has centered his campaign on Israel's world-beating vaccination program. The competition that Mr. Netanyahu and his Likud party will face has shifted He's now up against parties headed by several former allies. What hasn't changed is that the prime minister remains under indictment in three corruption cases, charged with bribery, fraud, and breach of trust, charges he's always denied. And, once again, coalition building will be key. Post-election horse trading will decide whether Israel gets a lasting government or yet another date with the ballot box. Likud was suffering until very recently from what was perceived as quite a shambolic handling of the pandemic by Netanyahu and his government. Anshul Pfeffer is our Israel correspondent and is based in Jerusalem. But now that Israel's reached the situation where a majority of the adults have been vaccinated and the lengthy third nationwide lockdown has ended, and lo and behold, we're seeing a little surge in his party in Likud's polling in recent days, just on time for the election. So as the polls have it now, then how will Mr. Netanyahu's party do? Netanyahu's Likud is still on track to be the largest party. In the polling, they're winning about a quarter of the electorate. What's important, obviously, in Israel with proportional representation is not just the size of any specific party, but the total of seats which a block of parties are expected to win. And since Netanyahu's block is still missing a couple of seats for a majority, the question is... If the surge that the polls were picking up at the end of last week continues, then Netanyahu is likely to gain a couple of seats, and those seats may be the seats that will complete his majority, unless those seats come from parties which were anyway in his block. And then the deadlock between the pro-Netanyahu and the anti-Netanyahu block will probably remain. So that's not to say that he's an incredibly popular leader, but he might just be popular enough. In most polls, a small majority of Israelis are saying that they would like to see a different prime minister, they would like to see Netanyahu leave office. And yet Netanyahu still is poised to win because 
this opposition, which represents 55% or so of Israelis, is so divided and it ranges from parties on the far right to the communists and Arabs on the left. And there's very little prospect of them cooperating in an alternative coalition. And what's probably more crucial, there's no prospect of them joining behind one person who will be prime minister instead of Netanyahu. So why is that success with the vaccination program not enough to gain the popularity he needs to win more cleanly? Well, this is the fourth election Israel's having in the last two years, and people's attitudes towards Netanyahu are almost set in stone. You'll struggle to find an Israeli who hasn't got an opinion about Netanyahu. Whatever the results tonight of the election, Netanyahu still has to appear in court in 13 days for the beginning of the witness stage of his trial for bribery and fraud. And right now he hasn't got a way of weaseling out of that tight spot. But he hopes that if he eventually can form a government, he hopes to be able to pass legislation granting him immunity from prosecution. And the interesting thing is that the trial has barely featured in the election campaign because all the parties, whether they're for or against Netanyahu, know by now that this isn't going to sway Israelis either way. Now, clearly, we've had quite a few conversations about Israeli elections. What has changed since the last time? Well, it does feel like Groundhog Day, fourth election in less than two years. The main change, however, is that if in the previous three elections there was one clear challenger, Benny Gantz, the centrist general who managed to build overnight his party blue and white into a party that would rival Likud, now there are at least three challengers to Netanyahu, none of them coming even close with their parties to Likud. We have the centrist, Yair Lapid, who was uh, Benny Gantz's partner in the previous elections, but when Benny Gantz decided to go into government with Netanyahu, he broke away from him, and now he has got most of those votes that voted for Benny Gantz in the previous election, but not enough of them. So Yair Lapid's party is the second largest party, but it's still trailing behind Likud in the polls by eight or nine seats. And then we have two right-wing challenges to Netanyahu. We have Naftali Bennett of the Amina party, who claims that he wants to replace Netanyahu, but also won't deny that he may end up going into a coalition with him. And uh, Gidon Saar, who founded the New Hope Party, Saar is a former Likudnik who broke with Likud back in December, claiming that Netanyahu is basically running the country for his own interests. But both Saar and Bennett have failed to uh, gain enough support to make their parties a real right-wing alternative to Netanyahu. So the real question remains, will these three challenges be able to work together in the aftermath of the election? Will they have enough seats between them? But can they even agree on which of them will lead? And what's your view on that? Will any of them be able to cobble together a coalition? Well, right now, it seems that all three of them have very slim chances. Lapid, who should be by the numbers the leading challenger, is suffering from the fact that the right-wing elements of the opposition are saying that they won't serve under him because he's a leftist. He's not a leftist, but that's the way that Netanyahu has successfully branded him. And Sarah and Bennett will just be leaders of small parties. It's hard to see either of them successfully claiming the prime minister's uh, office. However, there is a distinct chance that Netanyahu will not have a majority on the day after the election. And neither side will be able to form a coalition. And Israel, the political delegation will continue for months and perhaps to a fifth election in two and a half years. And then you'll be able to interview me once again. 
It would be a joy to do so, Anshul, but that does point to a, an almost systemic problem in Israel's democracy, or, or is the problem Mr. Netanyahu's iron grip over the politics? Well, that's a really good question, because if after four elections Israel fails to reach an outcome, then it does indicate that the political system is broken. However, the counter-argument to that would be that for 20 consecutive elections, Israel's system did deliver a government. So it would seem that the problem is that Benjamin Netanyahu has achieved this sort of stranglehold on the Israeli political system. I mean, the parties aren't even talking about policies and what they would like to do if they were in government. It's all about whether they'll be with Netanyahu or whether they'll oppose Netanyahu. That's really the only issue on the agenda. As long as Netanyahu is here in the political arena, that may not change. Anshul, once again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Jason. However many elections it takes for Israel to form a lasting government, The Economist will be there, in print, online, and in audio. A subscription gets you insights from every corner of the globe. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link, as always, is in the show notes. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Authorities in Manila have introduced tighter restrictions to combat a surge in coronavirus cases. The Philippines is experiencing one of the worst COVID outbreaks in Southeast Asia. Anyone under the age of 18 will now have to stay at home. But for all children under the age of 15, that's already been the rule for more than a year. Yet in a country where a third of the population is in that age bracket, the measures have seen surprisingly little opposition. Ophelia Abu, who's a delightful six-year-old, she hasn't left her house for 11 months now. In the morning, she attends school on Zoom. And the rest of the time, she says she spends her time sort of eating lots of snacks. If you ask her if she's getting fat because she's eating lots of snacks, she says no, she loves to dance. She plays Uno with her mother. And if it's not raining, she runs around on the roof of her building. Leo Morani writes for The Economist. She doesn't mind being cooped up at home, she says. So for her, it's fine. It's her mother who's having the tough time because Ophelia can't leave home. Her mother can't leave home either, except very quickly to go to the markets or whatever. And then she has to take care of Ophelia. She has to do her job and manage everything. I mean, we've spoken on the show a lot about how the limitations on movement and socialization of kids have been playing out during the pandemic. Why is the Philippines different in that regard? The Philippines is different, I would say, for two main reasons, both related. One is, in most countries where we've discussed this subject or where this has been happening, there's been a great move, a great push to get kids back out, to get them back in face-to-face schooling, or at the very least, to get them back in playgrounds and so on. The Philippines is unique in being quite comfortable with keeping its kids at home. I spoke to a variety of health types. I spoke to public health officials, epidemiologists, pediatricians. I looked at statements from child psychiatrists, adolescent psychiatrists, and 
everyone is fine with this. They all say, look, we're aware that there's a risk to keeping kids stuck at home for this long, but we really think that the benefits for society of doing this far outweigh the risks to the kids themselves. Why is that then? Why do they think that is the best way forward? One important factor is the structure of households. In the Philippines, only about a tenth of people over the age of 60 live on their own. Most of them live in multi-generation households. And also because the Philippines has such a huge number of emigrant workers, that is Filipinos who've left the Philippines to go work somewhere else, you have a very large proportion of what's called a skip generation household. These are households where you have grandparents living with their grandchildren and taking care of their grandchildren, but the parents are away. So that's a particularly dangerous thing when it comes to COVID and transmission. Although children aren't likely to get a serious case of COVID-19, this we know from various countries around the world, we also know that they can still catch the virus and transmit it to other members of their households. So in these circumstances, restricting the movement of children also means less risk for their older family members. But why is the rule about staying at home? Can't kids stay near home, just avoid public spaces? Another very important factor that you have to remember is Manila is not London. It's not like you can step out of your house and go to a nice green space or a nice open space with clean air. In cities like Manila, your public spaces are basically shopping malls. That's where families go to hang out. These are the public spaces, but these are also enclosed spaces. Letting kids out of the house, I mean, unless they're going to play in the street in traffic, there's not really anywhere for them to go that would be considered COVID safe. How do the public feel about this with kids cooped up all of that time? So I went into the story thinking that there would be public health officials and parents saying, release our children and all that. I was very surprised to find that there is broad support across Filipino society for these measures. Parents are finding it hard, but they acknowledge that this needs to be done for the safety of society and other members of their households. I spoke to pediatricians, epidemiologists, public health specialists. Across the medical establishment, there seems to be wide-ranging support for these measures. The criticism that exists is less about the rules and more about the rulemaking. Over the past year, the rules have sort of changed. At first, it was everybody stay at home. Then 18 to 60-year-olds can leave. Now it's 16 to 65-year-olds can leave. Then sometimes they say, oh, we're going to change this rule. Then they change their minds the next day. So it's all been a bit chaotic. There's also been murmurings of discontent around what is being prioritized. So one senator noted that children are still not back in school, but cockfighting has been allowed again. So that sort of thing is quite frustrating for people. But broadly, there is support for keeping kids at home. And so in that sense, there's nobody who's really against the policy as written. People who worry about the country's economy are worried about the effects of keeping children at home. When you don't allow kids into shopping malls, their parents are not going to go into the shopping malls either. And that's just one thing, right? More broadly, when you keep kids at home, their parents tend to stay at home as well. They're not going out and doing things other than working. And so that is quite a drag on the country's economy. The Philippines economy contracted the most of any Southeast Asian economy over the course of 2020, not just because they kept kids at home, obviously, for a number of reasons, but this is quite contributing factor. So economic planners and forecasters and businesses especially are pushing for these rules to change, for the ages at which people can leave the house to be expanded. But so far, they don't seem to have had very much traction. Leo, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Jason. It's a satisfyingly simple premise. You add some butter, and then some sugar, crack in some eggs. Now we sift some flour, there we go, and mix that in. 
and of course, chocolate chips. Full disclosure here, that's not me doing the baking. It's the producer of this segment, Stevie Hertz. Mm. What she's making is chocolate chip cookies, an American icon best accompanied by a glass of milk. The thing is, the cookie's wild success at home and abroad wasn't entirely accidental. The first biscuits were very different to the sweet treats that we would associate with cookies. Josie DeLapp is The Economist's international editor and writes about food for our sister magazine, 1843. They were basically slices of bread that were baked twice, made by the Greeks and the Romans. It was a way of preserving food, but it wasn't very much to celebrate. When you get to the 8th or 9th century, Islamic confectioners started to add sugar to these kinds of baked goods. And then when you get to the 16th century, you see biscuits beginning to appear in British cooking. They included ingredients like coriander and aniseed, which were seen as a way of warding off digestive problems. So all of this was kind of a world away from the rich, buttery, sugary, chocolatey confections that we would associate with cookies and biscuits today. So how did we get to the treats that we know today? Well, if we're thinking about the chocolate chip cookie in particular and its history and development in America, you probably want to look in part to the Dutch. The word cookie almost certainly evolved from the Dutch word kookjens. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. But the Dutch and other Northern Europeans brought lots of different baked goods with them to America when they started to move there. Gradually, cookies evolved to be the flat baked things that we we would associate today with the word cookie. Okay, that gets us to cookies as the uh, flat and crisp type treat. But where does the chocolate chip part come in? So chocolate chip cookies have quite a specific story of origin, though it's unclear exactly how accurate it is. But Ruth Wakefield is credited with inventing the chocolate chip cookie sometime in the 1930s, which is when she and her husband were running a restaurant, the Toll House restaurant in Massachusetts. She often served types of cookies as desserts. They were famous for this. And one night she ran out of nuts for these cookies and so decided to experiment. And she chopped up a bar of Nestle's semi-sweet chocolate apparently with an ice pick, which seems drastic, and put the pieces into her cookie dough. Now, she apparently expected them to melt to give an evenly chocolatey cookie, but actually the chunks maintained their integrity, and so you got that chocolate chip effect. The recipe was published in a local newspaper and in the Toll House recipe book, and then she signed a deal with Nestle in 1940, which allowed the company to feature the recipe on its wrappers. But you you seem to indicate that there's a, a little bit of doubt around this mythology? Right. Stella Parks, who is a pastry chef and cookbook author, has pointed out that as chocolate became cheaper in the latter half of the 19th century, cooks across America were already adding it to cookies, especially to ones called jumbles. A recipe printed in newspapers across America in 1877 was pretty similar to the one that appears on bags of Nestle chocolate chips today. And I think that it's always useful for a company to have a really good story behind a product. And so I think that it was the relationship that she built up with Nestle that really cemented her as the inventor of of this biscuit. 
Well, I'm, I'm sure you'd agree with me that the, the proof is in the pudding, as it were. So what about that recipe that's, that's printed even now on the packets? I mean, it's a pretty good recipe. And to be honest, although everybody is always searching for the perfect chocolate chip cookie recipe, they're fundamentally quite similar. You know, they all involve butter and sugar and flour and some kind of raising agent and chocolate chips. So the original one from Ruth Wakefield was really, really small. I mean, they were half an ounce of cookie dough and she cooked them until they were brown and crispy. Whereas other ones from, for example, the Levan Bakery in New York, that uses six ounces of cookie dough for each one. And the advantage of that is that the size of it means that you get a variety of textures. So those different tweaks that you can make to a recipe give you a different quality to your cookie. So the ingredients don't change much, but the, the output product certainly can. I mean, what's, what's your favorite? How do you make them? So I like to brown the butter, which is where you melt it until the solids in the butter get brown and toasty. And that gives a really nice, nutty, treacly flavor to the cookie. Josie, thanks very much for joining us and, and happy baking. Jason, enjoy the cookies. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. 